0: Today's episode is called When Mental Health Labels Don't Work. A lot of this episode is going to be under the assumption that you as a listener have a basic idea of how mental health diagnoses work, um, how they're carried out and what they mean. So if you're not entirely sure, um, the resource that nearly every clinician uses. is called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. We're on the fifth one right now, um, if you want to look up how exactly that works. But today what I want to focus on um, is something that I've seen a lot in my own practice um, and in looking in research and data and seeing how a lot of this stuff has started to play out over time. So we're going to go over the history of mental health disorder diagnoses, particularly around the disease model of treatment. Um, And we'll see how these diagnoses can be helpful when they're harmful and when they're just plain inappropriate. Um, And also a little bit about what you can do if you were in need of a diagnosis, even if you would want one at all. Um, Again, this is something you should always go and consider speaking to a professional about. Um, But hopefully this episode can help you sort through different ways that you yourself can find what's useful for you and make educated and uh, intentional personal decision on how you treat your own mental health. So let's start with where these diagnoses come from and why they've been so widely used. So over the years... Uh, mental health diagnoses have taken more and more of a role in psychological treatment. Um, Early on in the 50s, we would use these diagnoses as a way to create very specific and nowadays considered awful or barbaric treatment. But the idea was that if we could categorize people's experiences and we could provide specific treatment – that we could cure what ails people. Now, we've gotten more accurate since the 50s, but there was a consistent idea in there that at least we could organize how people experienced the world and what treatments could work. I mentioned the disease model specifically here for a reason. Um, a lot of mental health treatment has followed along with a medical model of treatment. If you're unaware of, connections between those two. Um, I'll have further episodes that go more in-depth into this, but the basic idea is is if we can bring someone in and we can find specific markers of a disorder, of a sickness, of an illness, whatever you want to call it, then we can find specific and effective treatment. We're the mental health treatment has gone, I think, a little bit wrong is we may have over-identified with a medical model. So let me give you an example. If someone comes in to an emergency room and it's very apparent they have a broken arm, where a bone was straight, it is no longer so, it's very easy to assume, hey, there's something wrong with that arm. Now, in a medical setting, what would hopefully happen You start scanning it, you start examining it, you start asking questions. Now what's really important in these kinds of scans and in this uh, understanding of the structure of the arm is that if you can find exactly where breaks are, you can find where pain is, how it happened, any underlying medical conditions, you can apply specific treatment, right? Um, We've gotten really high tech in scans um, over the past, I'd say, 10, 15 years especially, to where we can very specifically see what's going on underneath the skin. This is also carried into other diseases. You know, we take things like cancer, where we have greatly understood uh, or increased our understanding of things like uh, severe cancers to where we start to be able to treat specifically the type of cancer based on where it is in the body. That idea has slipped over into psychological spaces, Um, and I don't particularly place blame on anyone for that, but you have to think. If someone is having a severe psychological episode or a psychotic episode, where do they go? They typically don't show up to a therapist's office. They typically show up in the emergency room. And so in those scenarios, I cast no blame on a doctor who sees a broken arm in one room and someone psychotic in the other. It is exactly their skill set and their training to treat people under the lens of diagnosis and treatment. What this has started to do, though, is it's taken the humanity and the complexity out of treatment and recovery. With a broken arm, we can scan we can do blood work, we can see exactly what's going on to a certain degree. With mental health diagnoses, though, we do not have the ability to scan the brain in the same way that we can scan an arm. The brain is incredibly complex, and every time we think we understand it, it's gotten even more complex. There was a study out of Duke in 2019 that started (laughs) making us question our brain scans in and of itself. But we have started to over-assume that we understand what is happening in the brain and how it's working. So we'll go back to that arm analogy that I was using earlier. So instead of a broken arm, let's say that we have someone who is hallucinating. They're seeing and hearing things that aren't there. Now, if we were to just look at the outside of this arm or this hallucination, it becomes very obvious when they start talking about helicopters flying around the ER. Yeah, they're obviously hallucinating. There aren't real helicopters flying in the emergency room, right? But how did they get that way? Does it matter? In a lot of disease-modeled or medical-modeled treatments, what they're looking for are brain scans to see how functioning um, is happening in someone. But they also look for the neurochemicals that are present. They have a history of any kind of other hallucinations or psychotic episodes. And they'll go from there and start to assume that this pattern means that there's a consistent underlying issue that needs to be addressed. And they're probably right, but there's an important factor missing, and that is the human factor. That human factor starts to tell us why that person is experiencing hallucinations. Is it because they're incredibly stressed, and they have an underlying mental health disorder. It's because they're using drugs and they're not telling anyone about it. Then you get an inaccurate diagnosis and people think that someone's hallucinating because of some genetic disorder, when in reality they could be using an illicit substance. There are many different ways that you could look at this broken arm or this hallucination, and all of them matter. Sometimes those disorders are correctly identified. There are specific genetic markers that we see in mental health disorders that are nearly universal. I think a great example of this is schizophrenia. No matter where you are in the world, the true rate of schizophrenia is around 1%. Now, different countries, different parts of the world experience schizophrenia differently, but... By and large, it's around 1%. That, to me, sounds like a brain disease. But let's take it out of brain diseases, and let's take it out of hallucinations. Let's take it into something more commonplace, like anxiety or depression. When we talk about anxiety and depression in the United States, it's almost become a badge of honor, and that's another episode for another time. But what's important to know is that anxiety and depression are more than just label, but more than just the diagnosis. Let's go to the DSM to learn more about it. We have these sets of criteria that we use to diagnose anxiety and depression, and it gets way more complicated than anxiety and depression. Like, does someone have a bipolar disorder where they feel really high highs and really low lows, and you're just catching them in treatment when they're at the lows, and we call that depression? It's an inaccurate diagnosis, by the way. Or is someone's anxiety related to a genetic condition? Is it due to a traumatic brain injury? Does it have anything to do with what's happening currently in someone's life? A common example I give in therapy is that sometimes people will show up in my office and say, I think I have some sort of anxiety. And I learned that the reason they have anxiety is because they're doing dumb things. If you do dumb things and it makes you anxious, you don't have an anxiety disorder. You are doing dumb things. Now, you might have an underlying disorder, but see, that did not really cut it for me anymore. And this is where the DSM becomes important. The DSM is great at describing symptoms. This Diagnostic and Statistical Manual has become very adept in helping us understand patterns over time, but it does very little to help explain where these symptoms are coming from. And so we bridge the gap between these patterns of symptoms and where we usually think it comes from. So can someone have an underlying neurological reason for anxiety and depression? Sure. Happens all the time. But why would they qualify for a full clinical disorder There's a lot of life that happens from birth until when someone comes in my office. And I think that's just, if not even more important than just what criteria someone meets. So again, I'm not against the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. I think it's a great tool. It helps us understand patterns of behavior, but it has no bearing, and I would say in the large part, of telling us exactly where it comes from. Now there are guesses. I think there are very good guesses in there, but the problem is when you mix the disease model ideology with the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, and you end up with people in offices and clinics who see their disorder as something inherent inside of them. And there's pretty convincing evidence for that as well. I mean, they filled out all the forms, They've been told by many professionals. And so people start to believe that their disorder, their mental health label is just them. It's not an experience they have. It's not something they deal with. It is them. Now, I know I'm going to play a little semantics game here, but follow along with me. There's a difference between saying, I have OCD and I am OCD. Now, I'm not getting all snowflake on everybody right now, but what I am pointing out is there's a difference between how we treat ourselves and our symptoms when we over-identify with what we're experiencing and we start to internalize it. There's also another problem, though. You also, other than the people who are given a diagnosis that may or may not be appropriate, You have people who have disorders but don't receive diagnoses for one reason or another. Sometimes people have mental health disorders and they come into treatment as an adult wondering what's happening. And they may no longer qualify for a disorder that they probably should because they've become adapted to it. Now, that might sound a little weird, but follow me here. The most common version of this that I see is something like ADD or ADHD, where someone could probably qualify for that label, but turns out that since they've been able to orient their lives around that issue, they've not only become adapted and measured in their responses, but they've learned to use it for a benefit as well. So... What good is it to give someone a diagnosis? Would it make them feel better? Does it matter? As a therapist, I've started to ask these questions more and more. How useful is a label? I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. It may not be a secret to some of you who have been in the mental health realm for a while. These labels are not just descriptors that therapists use. They're actually something that helps people get treatment. I use help in quotes here. Because when it comes to things like health insurance, insurance companies will not give authorization for treatment when a therapist or a treatment center says, oh, they 100% have OCD, but because they've adapted, they don't technically qualify anymore, but our professional opinion is they should still receive treatment. See, that doesn't cut it. So those labels aren't just descriptors. They can often be gates for whether or not people receive treatment at all. And now you're experiencing the catch-22 here as a lot of clinicians have started to experience. And myself, I've started to push back on is, let's say we have someone in treatment who should get treatment, we're all aware should get treatment, but they simply cannot continue the coping skills, or the dynamics anymore. They've run their course, but because they've been successful for the past 20, 30 years, they don't receive treatment. They can't afford it. See, when we take out the human element, we make it simply about diagnoses, disorders, and criteria, we start to lose a true understanding of people. We begin to see them in terms of yeses and nos and numbers on a sheet. So these disorders start to become a problem or these labels start to become a problem because they become less and less about someone's humanity and what they're experiencing. A lot of times more what can get insurance to get along with us, what we can do to get that panel on board so that the health insurance you pay for will actually help you. This has started to create a problem long-term. Whether doctors or therapists or clinicians or nurses, whoever it is, have played along with this game, either out of ignorance or a true desire to help, we have a whole bunch of people around us who have been given legitimate diagnoses, at least by the letter, but it's no longer useful. Why would it no longer be useful? Let's say someone comes into therapy and they get themselves on some kind of medication and through sessions and family work and outside expectations, not only are they stable, they're much better than they were before. And let's say they even come off of the meds themselves do they still have a disorder or no? And if the answer is no, how much did that disorder mean at the time? Was that label useful? Or was it a descriptor? If you were to ask the medical community, that label should stick around indefinitely. Now, most of us won't say that, but whenever we request records... From someone. When someone's discharged from a facility, we copy and paste those diagnoses for our own to keep up with what's happening. And essentially, we can lock someone into a diagnosis that they may not fit anymore. So there's the problem in the medical and the therapeutic side of all of this, but let's look at the personal. I talked earlier about how People can over-identify with their labels. What happens when that label follows them around and they know they're different, but somehow they still have a label? You start to end up with people who feel as if the label is never going to go away, and it becomes a part of them, so much so that they color the world around them with this label that they technically no longer qualify for. But because it has stuck around for so long, there's no other way to see themselves. I'll let that settle in for just a moment that there might be people among us who are taking medication, who are doing treatment, and who address themselves with such a low and medicalized view that they could be crippled by their own hand through the help of others. Now look, I'm not insinuating that every mental health disorder can be swept away. If you listen to the episode before this, where I talked about my story, I made a comment that my brain is held together with duct tape and medication. I've done all the coping skills. I can. I've tried everything that I can. And still, there's some wires that aren't right. So yes, I still qualify for some disorders, but that doesn't mean I have the same severity. It doesn't always mean that the labels are useful. So This is what I actually teach clients is you're coming into therapy. Why would you want a label? If it's for insurance approval, I can understand. If it's to help make sense of things, I can see how that would be important to someone. But if it's a way to Embed a scarlet letter onto their brain, onto their mind, onto their very sense of being, what good is it? Why not just understand how we work, how we respond to the things that we can do, and find ways around it? Does someone have depression? Do they get sad sometimes? Does someone have an anxiety disorder? Or are they a little high strung? Does that label matter? Some would say yes. Obviously it matters because that's how we understand ourselves. And I would give the pushback. Is that useful? Are we creating a victim mentality and handing out diagnoses like candy? Anybody who raised children a decade or two ago knows about the ADD, ADHD epidemic that apparently showed up out of nowhere. For those of you unaware, you can receive a diagnosis of ADHD or ADD and absolutely not have it. There are plenty of children in this kind of scenario where they presented with hyperactivity. They couldn't sit still in their chairs. They couldn't focus and were rebellious towards their teacher and peers. I have a couple of alternative theories besides just a brain disorder. What about trauma? What if home life is so chaotic that they have to recreate or gain a sense of normalcy in school? Because when you've experienced trauma, silence is terrifying. Or maybe you just have an active boy in your room whose brain isn't designed to sit down for eight hours. Does that kid have ADD or ADHD? By the book, probably. In reality, it's much more complicated than that. And this is where I'd like to present to you, the listener, of have you experienced any kind of labels or concerns in this way? Do they fit? Does it matter if they fit? You can examine this in yourself yourself. You start to think about where did I get this idea? Does it bring me benefit? Does it bring me comfort or too much comfort? Do I identify it as something that I experience or something that I am? I would posit to you that if a label is anything more than a descriptor, it is not useful. Because the disorders that we have identified are just that. They're patterns that we have identified. You can call them something else. You can organize them in a different way. But they're patterns. They're things that are indicative of possible disorders. I would argue that it's more useful to know yourself than it is to know your diagnostic code. It also helps you humanize yourself. It helps us see that we as humans are incredibly complex. And that we shouldn't be pigeonholed into certain ideas. Now, are those ideas useful? Yes, obviously they're useful. They help us orient to the kind of treatment that could help save our lives. Not denying that in the slightest. Saying five, ten years after you get that label... Does it matter to you anymore? Should it? Does it matter to the people around you? If not, maybe you consider what that label means and if you even want it. But some people will also fight back, say, well, that doesn't identify me. When everyone around you says, oh, yes, it does. When I got diagnosed with ADHD, everyone around me said, well, yeah, obviously. And I was shocked. I'm not shocked now. So, for that reason, I can understand labels being useful, but I would ask you to consider are you missing a diagnosis or are you holding on to one for too long? So, what do we do with this? We have to think about what kind of treatment is useful because some people have legitimate anxiety that's wired into their brain and they don't need medication that's perfectly fine. So then what use is the label of anxiety? It may or may not have usefulness to the person, and so as a clinician, I'm gonna follow along with what is bringing people fulfillment and joy. I would encourage you to take this information and think on it and read up on it yourself, the history of the medical and the disease model, to look into what the DSM is and how it works, There's a lot of fluff and there's a lot of complexity, so don't feel like you have to get it all, but start to wonder how much humanity is involved in all of this, both in the written sense and how it's applied, because those are two different things. That same doctor in the emergency room, as much as we would love to be assured that he's seeing everyone in their human state, there just isn't time for it. How are you going to see every single person as a human when you have 30 different patients in the same ER? That's draining for anyone. So take this and evaluate it yourself. See what's useful. Maybe you're missing something. Maybe you need to ask the people around you if they're seeing patterns. Thank you for listening today, and I hope this helps you reach out to other people, consider yourself more, and if you feel the need, you can leave a tip so I can pay my producer. If not, I hope that this helps you understand yourself and find a fuller life.